1: Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. You'd think by now we would have done an episode on J.F.'s book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice. In a way, it's felt like a subject too big to tackle. Or maybe just redundant. After all, every episode of Weird Studies is shot through with its ideas. It's the book that started it all. It's one of a half-dozen or so weirdosphere books that I would happily shoot off into space in hopes that some alien might find them and think kindly of us as a species. It's a work of 21st-century aesthetic theory that some might find old-fashioned, for how many thinkers stick up for the autonomy of art these days? But to me, it discloses the capital N, New, appearing in advance of its audience and heralding a vision beyond our present limitations. Eric Davis's late, lamented podcast, Expanding Mind, used to be my constant gym companion. And one day, when I was hogging the bench press, listening to Eric's 2015 interview with JF, here, at last, I found a kindred spirit. Someone who was telling it like it is about art. A spiritual dude who wrote lyrically, but with philosophical heft. I devoured his book and recommended it to my friend, Weird Studies' spirit animal, Graham Larkin. Graham noticed that JF lived in Ottawa, more specifically Vanier, and since I was going up to visit Graham anyway, why not let's do a thing? So we threw the book a launch party of sorts at Octopus Books in downtown Ottawa. By the way, if you sign up for our Patreon, which, if you haven't, what are you even doing, you can find the audio of that event buried somewhere in the mountain of exclusive content we have over there now. Just hours and hours of content, waiting for you to consume it. I call weird studies CONTENT all the time, but as I'm sitting here, I ask myself, would Ursula Le Guin call what she did CONTENT? Or Glenn Gould? Or really anyone we've talked about on this show? CONTENT suggests some indifferent bulk matter, stuffed into identical cans with all caps CONTENT stenciled in black letters on white labels, all stacked in uniform rows in a warehouse. One can is as good as another— they all work about as well to feed the product cycle. Content is one of those words in which it is possible to discern the mental life of a whole culture, in this case, North America, in the age of an accelerationist consumer capitalism. In Reclaiming Art, I found someone who was wise to that whole scene and could write a paragraph like this. Quote, The all-consuming razzle-dazzle of sound and light with which we are bombarded does not draw us into the secret universe of another consciousness. On the contrary, it fools us into taking as self-evident a picture of life that in reality belongs to nobody, effectively producing an artificial space wherein the market and the state can thrive as though they were inextricable parts of the cosmos rather than the mutable accidents of history that they are. We are in danger today of losing the capacity to distinguish between artistic creation, as Proust defined it, and the aesthetic creativity that goes into a commercial jingle, a new car design, or a hollow summer blockbuster. If our confusion suits the reigning political and economic regime just fine, it is because it stands as proof that the operation to supplant the dream space of soul and psyche with a fully controllable interface is going according to plan. The last thing I'll say about Reclaiming Art is that JF is going to teach an online course for which it will be a principal text. The course is hosted by Neural Learning and is called Art and Contemplation, the Study of Art as a Spiritual Practice. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. JF recently visited a doctoral seminar I've been teaching this semester, and he led a discussion of his book. It was a wonderful conversation, and I would be the first to sign up for JF's course— were it not for the fact that I'm already doing one with him. Not a course, but, you know, content. Okay, enjoy the show. This week, J.F. put in an appearance in a doctoral seminar that I'm teaching, which is really kind of a music and esoteric studies seminar, although I gave it the title Weird Studies. Sacrilege! <laughs> yeah, I know. It's sort of. I feel sort of bad about that because weird <laughs> studies is supposed to be the academic field that doesn't and can't exist. But anyway, J.F. was into talk with us we had a wonderful conversation over two and a half hours yeah it's fun I gave it the title towards an esoteric theory of art which was entirely my idea and actually when we started I was like I don't know if that's even a good title for what it is you want to do I mean what we were doing that day is we were talking about reclaiming art and an essay by Deleuze percept and affect wait what's what's the correct title of that? It's not just Percept It's called and affect. Percept,
0: Affect, and Concept. Right. R- riveting title. Just a beautiful title for something. Percept, Affect, and Concept. And
1: we also read the equally scintillatingly titled <laughs> on the relation of analytical psychology to poetry. Like Carl Jung, yeah. But actually, I don't know, we talked a bit about it and decided maybe that is a good title, like yeah. something that we have been doing on this show from the beginning has been to develop a theory of art. It's not the only thing we've been doing, but a way of thinking about art such that we might have new ways of talking about art, mm. ways of talking about art that haven't already been pre-formatted by the mental habits of our age. Yeah, And we have found the esoteric tradition, the weird, and the writing pertaining thereto to be a very fertile source of ideas for that esoteric theory of art. Right. So I guess you could call it an esoteric theory of art from that point of view, but also I think because there are certain ideas that we would associate with the Western esoteric tradition. For example, the idea of initiation Hmm. and the related idea of gnosis, which we God knows we've talked about enough on this show, Yeah, And those ideas are, I believe, ideas that are at the heart of that project of creating an esoteric theory of art. So esoteric, not only in style, but substance, not only in form, but content. Uh, I should say, parenthetically, that I actually dislike such binaries of form and content, but leaving that aside. So I guess one place we can start is thinking about the esoteric content of Reclaiming Art. Right. You know, this is a book that was written out of a set of influences, and some of those influences, many of those influences have turned up in this show. But I guess I could start off by saying, like, I think this book itself is unthinkable without the occult, without occultism, esotericism, without magic and maybe that's a place to start.
0: Yeah, that's a great place to start. So, you remember uh, when we were talking about Tomberg and uh, Meditations on the Tarot and his kind of dualism when it comes to magic, right? You've got sorcery and you've got sacred magic. And I think there's a similar thing going on in this book about like two types of art. Right. There's art proper and then there's artifice, both of which have a kind of esoteric function, at least in the way that I ended up seeing it as I was writing this. I guess the book opens with the argument that art is literally and um, non-hyperbolically paranormal because the very existence of art bears witness to a power in humans to transcend the drift of cause and effect, to think in terms of sheer possibilities, to short circuit what would otherwise be a tight chain of instinct and reflex, right? The way that you might imagine an animal functions, specifically maybe like an insect functions, in order to think in terms of not only what is, but what could be, what might be, what what ought to be, right? And that imaginative function, which is obviously central to art, is very hard to account for on the purely materialist slash deterministic basis. Very hard to account for that. So the argument at the beginning is like art in itself is like so many other supernatural phenomena like uh, ghosts or uh, prophetic visions, telepathy, you know, a kind of paranormal thing. It's just that it's right there in front of us. So we forget that we, we forget how strange it is and we forget how it is constantly trying to confront us with a fundamental strangeness that, we want to kind of paper over in the everyday. And that's that's kind of why we decide to ignore art or to really categorize it or to, to neuter it in galleries and libraries, to make sure it's under control, to historicize it, you know. But ultimately, the fact is that if you were to wander into the Chauvet cave in France today and see the images on the walls of the cave, the argument I'm making is that The effective power of those images is as real for us now as they were when those images were made 40,000 years ago. And this, in spite of the fact that, of course, the people back then would have interpreted the meaning and function of these images very differently from our own way of seeing them. Nevertheless, the argument is that there's a fundamental kind of basic aesthetic effect that's at work in the images that transcends historical happenstance and connects us with a more fundamental reality than what we take to be the whole of reality in the everyday. So in that sense, it's esoteric because it's calling us back to that kind of mysterious imaginal space that we inhabit, but are constantly kind of forgetting we inhabit as we take things at face value and get kind of caught up and tangled up in the the vagaries of history and all that.
1: Yeah, you know, I never noticed what a brilliant move that was before rereading, reclaiming for the seminar this week. Never noticed what a brilliant move it was to spend some time on the Chauvet Cave at the beginning. Because the standard move that we moderns make about art is to say that the meaning of art is entirely contingent and contingent on the sign systems evolved at a particular place and time, certain significances that are given to art. We basically tend to look at art and the appreciation of art as a kind of pretentious form of pareidolia. Like there's no there's no there there. There's no meaning there except what we are reading into the indifferent matter of the universe. Right, And you find this, you know, you find this in literature where we're treating words as neutral counters in a kind of game that we're playing, a game of signification we're playing with one another. But it works even better for music because music, of course, has such uncertain propositional content that it becomes very easy to just sort of say, like, oh, music is just its just random shit. And if you're finding meaning in it and significance of it, it that's because that's what human beings do. We find meaning in things. We project meaning onto things, right?
0: Right. So the idea being that music... A work of music is just basically like a kind of cloud, and then everybody sees the shapes they want, and then eventually right. there's a consensus. No, oh, there's a face in that cloud. and
1: But then the problem with that is if you are saying that culture and the cultural context, the cultural situation of an artwork gives it all of its meaning, all of its power, all of its potential to mean anything, what do we make of art that has by tens of thousands of years outlived it's cultural context, of which no cultural context really comes down to us at all, except for the that art, art itself. Right. And, you know, I've been reading a little bit about Ice Age art, about art in the, the Neolithic. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me, the things that we can learn They're just tantalizing clues, but we can learn certain things about the context of this art. Like, for example, things that you mention in your book that some of the most elaborate or perhaps most meaningful or most important, best rendered pieces of art in these caves are put in precisely the most inaccessible parts. So this is not necessarily art for exhibition. This is perhaps art for... For ritual right? To go back to Benjamin, yeah Benjamin's distinction between ritual value And exhibition value But there's also some evidence that You know, you have different animals In these caves I'm not just talking about Chauvet I'm talking about like caves in Western Europe Generally where all of this art can be found You find images of animals And in one or two caves at least They found that they will put different animals In different kinds of rooms So uh, rooms, quote unquote, you know, different spaces in Chambers the cave. And so or, yeah, right. Yeah, and so animals that are herbivorous, that are prey animals for human beings will be put in a room that's very reverberant hmm. and predatory animals, animals that human beings would have to fear would be put in rooms that are unresonant or they would be put on different walls and we don't necessarily know what that means, but we know that Okay, so now we know that there's some distinction being made between kinds of animals. But all that is just kind of an aside. Like, that's an interesting footnote. Basically, we are getting this art without any meaningful cultural context. And yet it still works as art. It still delivers some kind of extraordinary charge. Unless you're just going to be a complete prick about it and say like, oh, well, we're now we're just projecting our own fantasies and desires and whatnot onto these fresh works of art, We're just immediately going and doing that. Right. Um, but fuck that shit. I find that very unconvincing. It does not meet the basic problem that you have to start somewhere. That chain of signification has to start somewhere. And where it starts is the mute image on the cave wall. Right. And where am I getting whatever... Feelings, whatever emotions, whatever movements of the soul, where am I getting that? I have to get it from the art itself. And that's that art itself thing that moderns are so willing to entertain because that sounds occult, right? You know, this idea that this passive material art can somehow be imbued with its own force, its own power, its own potentialities. That sounds a whole lot like imagining a sacred tree or a sacred brook, imagining things in our natural world as having sacred power. And that is pretty much exactly what we're arguing here. So that would at least be a first step towards asking, in what ways does this outline an esoteric theory of art?
0: Brilliant. One of the, my sources for the, the beginning of the book was uh, Werner Herzog's Wonderful documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is all about the Chauvet Cave and includes interviews with the scientists who are working in that cave and is a beautiful meditation on art. And what makes Herzog's film about the Chauvet Cave different from, say, academic articles about the Chauvet Cave, which are much more um, discursive in what they're trying to extract from this discovery, is that Herzog includes the aesthetic dimension As a self existing part of the reality of these caves. So for him, as an artist, it's like when Picasso went to see the Lascaux cave, he came out saying, supposedly saying, uh, they invented everything. Uh, When Picasso saw these paintings, he felt such a profound kinship with whoever made these paintings there was no doubt in his mind that some kind of communion was occurring between himself as an artist and the artists who made these paintings. Like they were speaking the same language. So that a historical take, which of course an anthropologist or an archeologist must kind of put aside to do their work is central in Herzog's film. And so he comes out with really interesting perspectives. For instance, he interviews one scientist who reports that while he was working in the cave, looking at these paintings, he began to have dreams, horrible dreams of supernatural lions. He describes them as powerful things that showed him new indirect ways of understanding the world. So he's describing the encounter with these paintings, much like one would describe an encounter with a supernatural entity. That's right. how it happened for him. And to him as a human being, not as a scientist, but as a human being, that is the central, that is the most memorable aspect of his encounter with the art in the Chauvet Caves, not the content of the articles that he co-authored, although those are very important as well, the experiential part for him was an encounter with some kind of other intelligence. And the argument I'm trying to make in the book is that that kind of encounter is what defines the aesthetic experience as such. And it's exactly what you don't find in any account of aesthetics is it, very rarely do you find a critical frame that will be predicated first and foremost on the bizarre and imaginal experience of encountering a work of art. There are some critics who go there, but even the ones who do, they don't formulate that as part of the essence of art. And so the, the book for me was a way to try to draw attention to the centrality of these the kind of like imaginal or supernatural or magical dimension of our encounter with works of art and I think it's an it's an experience that everyone's had at least once I say in the book at one point yeah everybody's had at least one film one painting one opera one thing one experience that transcends all of our capacities to formalize or formulate the experience and my thesis in the book was that that is what art is that is the essence of art and if we don't put that front and center if we don't make that the very crux of it, then we're just talking around it. But the minute you make that the crux of it, you're in very strange territory because you can't rely anymore on the traditional historicist tools one might use to talk about art. You're confronting something strange, almost something acausal, a kind of synchronistic event. Art as itself, like the entire history of art as a kind of synchronistic event in the
1: story of the universe and the story of humanity. Something that makes your... Theory of art here interesting. And as you say, it's not unique. But no. nevertheless, it's this threshold orientation towards the percipient rather than the artwork. The I don't want to say consumer of art because that is already to accede in advance to the barbarism of our age. <laughs> Your thinking proceeds from the experience of the viewer or reader or listener. Right, The person who is encountering the art. And most academic art criticism proceeds from, well, I shouldn't say most, but a a great deal proceeds from the idea that the artwork is signifying something and it's our job to figure out like what the art is saying. And we could do that in an old fashioned formalist sense. For example, if I were to engage in some kind of quasi-mathematical music analysis, breaking down a piece of music to the atoms of its harmonic and rhythmic cells. But I could also do it in the style that's far more common in the academic humanities today, some kind of sociologizing style, where I'm talking about the artwork in terms of the meanings that are attributed to it by its fans right? But I'm still talking about how, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever is coming up with certain messages or making certain kind of moves in narrative space and how those affect the communities around them. Right. But what you do is, you know, there's actually not a ton of explicit commentary on particular works of art in this book. You do mention specific works of art like the Starry Night. Is it the Starry Night? No, the Sunflowers painting of of Van Gogh or 2001. Some of the favorites that we've mentioned on the show too. But you don't go into a kind of formal analysis of them so much. What you're really doing is you're talking about the kinds of effects that they can have and have had on people. Art in this Manner becomes something like the Black Monolith of 2001. We see it's there and we can tell you the dimensions of the box, its proportions, its color, the degree to which it reflects light or something. But we can't tell you too much about like its purpose or where it came from. Like the mystery is intact, is fully preserved What we can observe is the behavior of the apes scampering around at the base of the monolith. And so that's kind of what you're doing. You're sort of pointing to art and say, like, it can do this to us. It does do this to us. And this is a kind of neat way to approach art. I'm wondering if you agree with my characterization of the kind of art theory that you're engaging in here.
0: Yeah, I do agree. But it's relevant, I think, that there is a way to group the types of things that provoke this sort of experience together. And then there are, like at the end of the book, there's a few pages devoted to the color out of space, for example, where there's a kind of analysis of that story. And um, there's the argument that the monolith in 2001 that scene where the uh, the hominid is looking at the bones after touching the monolith. And I never realized this till yesterday, but so the hominid is looking at a bunch of bones and, and casting the bones is like one of the oldest forms of divination, right? Using bones. The, so oh, yeah. The, 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 yeah. Mo- the hominid is divining. Possible futures by looking at bones. I, I don't think that's. I think that's important. Um, but the um, mm, so the mm, argument like in, in the book is that it's a very medium-specific film. Two thousand and one. It's telling us about cinema and it's telling us about art more generally, and it's showing us that the thing that makes us human isn't so much our our capacity to make tools, but the capacity to imagine other possible worlds, which is necessary or a prerequisite for the idea of building a tool. You build a tool to create a universe in which that tool exists. That's the reason you build a tool. If I had that, then the world would be more as it should be than it is now. And so I will build something to make that happen. So there is some kind of analysis, and I do think that there are specifiable meanings in works of art. And I think that some readings of art are better sure. than others, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so so there's that side. But but at the same time, right. what matters most is, is, and this is kind of the crux of it. It's all in the epilogue at the end. That's where I kind of put that. But the it's because the book was supposed to be a manifesto, right? Right. But it doesn't come off as a manifesto at all. So I wrote a little manifesto at the beginning. It's a very
1: gentle manifesto. (laughs) It's such a Canadian manifesto. (laughs) Exactly. The call to action at the end is basically like to approach works
0: of art as though they had been made for you specifically. And if you're an artist, to place your personal, your most intimate inner vision before all the dictates of market. Right. So that's the call to action, which I mean... Okay. Um, Yes. But the idea that when you watch 2001, the film exists in a way that it has never existed before because the work of art is always consummated in its experience by an other, right? Right. But to remember that when you approach a work of art, when you, you pick up Moby Dick, to approach it as though you were some inhabitant of the ancient savannah stumbling upon an artifact that fell from space. That's the way Alexander Solzhenitsyn paints the picture of what art is. It's a bizarre object that comes, like the monolith, It just pops up. And you can't really know what it is until you have interacted with it in an I-thou relationship. And to see art not as the consumption of cultural products, but seeing the experience of, of art or the aesthetic experience as an encounter with another, another intelligence. At the beginning, you might think it might be enough to get you started to think of the other intelligence as the intelligence of the author of the book or the painter of the painting you're looking at. But eventually, I think the deeper you practice this type of aesthetic praxis is you realize that there's a third element there, which is the work itself. The work itself is not reducible to the author or to your experience of it. There's an excess. And that's where all that interpretive hermeneutics can come out of. That's where you can turn a work of art into an instrument of your own transformation, of your own kind of... And and really to approach art as though it were a kind of practice. That's the the goal of the book, is to to open the door to that. It doesn't instruct people on doing that. Um, I'm actually doing a class next month about that. But it really is a kind of trying to bring us back to a a more naive view of art so that then art
1: can become for us consciously what it's always been, I think, unconsciously. I think that's an important refinement of what I was saying a moment ago. I didn't mean to imply that whereas other people create an aesthetic theory that is On the object side, that your theory is more on the subject side. Actually, it's far more interesting than that. Your way of approaching art troubles the very subject-object distinction in the first place. Right. And we talked about this in the seminar. A very typical kind of conversation that you have with educated moderns about art is like when you're trying to talk about art as anything other than what I described it as earlier, as the largely unconscious negotiation between individuals within a local sign system where we decide tacitly and more or less arbitrarily that this means X and this means Y. Cultures in this manner develop meanings for artworks and those meanings are handed down like a game of telephone. They change over time. It's a very tidy and rationalistic scheme for understanding how art works. And needless to say, it's it's a view that we don't We don't hold to here on Weird Studies. But when you start talking to people about that and saying like, yeah, is that really what's going on? Is art really just a kind of a passive recipient of our projected fantasies and desires and dislikes? Then you will always get some version of the following argument. Yeah, but if you take the Mona Lisa or Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or some other canonical work of Western art and you just drop it down, no context in... 18th century China, or you know whatever. Not that you could drop down Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in the 18th century because it hadn't been composed yet. But right. you see what I mean? Yeah. That if you just sort of parachuted an artwork into an alien cultural context, people would peer at it with total puzzlement. They would they wouldn't know what to make of it. You know, like a. I don't know, a bunch of Mongolian herders in the nineteenth century wouldn't listen to Beethoven's Ode to Joy and have tears spring to their eyes of this eternal hymn of peace and brotherhood for all mankind. It would just sound like some incomprehensible noise. But my point is that it's like, okay, we can we can come back to that issue, that the particulars of you know that hypothetical, but The thing about it is, is that we're acting as if every time someone listens to a piece of music or reads a novel or looks at a painting or whatever, anytime somebody engages with a work of art, it's like they're taking the Pepsi challenge. You remember the old Pepsi challenge of our youth where yeah. there are the Cola Wars, these endless kind of ad campaigns that Pepsi and Coke would launch against one another? And the big <laughs> one was the Pepsi challenge where Pepsi would like have blind taste tests and people would have a paper cup with Pepsi in it and a paper cup with Coke in it. And like nine people out of 10 prefer Pepsi. To Coke. The point that the advertisers were trying to make was the only reason that everybody thinks Coke is the best cola is because Coke has all this branding. But if you really go by taste, Pepsi's actually a better cola. And we act as if there's something like an objective standard such that if I blindfold you and drop a bunch of different artworks on you, you'll be able to tell me what they mean, You'll be, you know, and that that would be the measure of an artwork, which in turn assumes that an artwork embodies some objective state of affairs. And if you can't successfully take the Pepsi challenge with this artwork, if you can't have people extracting the same content from this object, if there isn't an objectivity to the utterance, then... The only possible thing it could be would be an entirely subjective utterance, i.e. something you're dreaming up and projecting onto the artwork. But the problem with that, as we were talking about this in the class, is that it seems to be the very nature of art that it inhabits a zone somewhere between subject and object. Hmm. that there's a kind of a non-dualism. And in the later part of this book, it feels to me like you're really getting very close to not just an esoteric theory of art, but a non-dual theory of art, where the aesthetic encounter is, uh, it's a kind of machine. Uh, there's a guy named Adam Savage. Do you ever watch Mythbusters? Yeah, once or twice, yeah. I loved that show back in the day. My kids love to watch it. I love to watch it with my kids. Adam Savage has a YouTube channel I enjoy watching where he just talks about making stuff. And I'm not a maker at all, furthest thing from it. I just love hearing people who are passionate about whatever it is they're passionate about talking about it. And I love hearing him talking about fabricating objects. But um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. In one of his little videos, he's he's like, what is a machine after all? He's like, it's different parts working together to do a thing. Yeah, And I love that definition. And he said, from that point of view, a staircase is a machine. Right. And I was like, yeah, it is a very simple machine, but there's different parts. There's a staircase and there's your legs and your pelvis and muscles and everything all working together to do a thing, to affect a transformation in your altitude.
0: What what Deleuze and Guattara would call a machinic assemblage. Right.
1: Right. And I bet Adam Savage doesn't know that he's a Delusian, but he is. <laughs> no. The century's is so what can we do? Yeah, but when you start thinking about a machinic assemblage in this manner, you realize that the encounter of the work of art is sort of like that staircase. There's the work of art, but there's also... The person who treads upon it and whose treading and whose action is entirely a function of the shape of the work of art, but then the action doesn't take place without the person mounting the staircase. Just like a car won't be a car until there's somebody driving it. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Or or you don't have knuckles until you do something, until you make a fist. What happens to your knuckles when you open your hand?
0: And that, that's the pragmatic angle, and it's very important, is what can you do with this, right? Yeah. Uh, you, so the argument about the Mona Lisa being dropped down in, in China or wherever, outside of its cultural context, and and then becoming indecipherable or meaningless and therefore that's showing us what the mona lisa actually is is a is a spurious argument it would take a while to untangle all of the uh the little spuriousities yeah the little problems and fallacies involved in that idea which is really prevalent of course if you're gonna you know let's say we want to talk about like a play like um Let's talk about a Moliere play. Well, if you don't read French, it's just a bunch of words on a paper. (laughs) Obviously, artworks as contingent objects in a world of becoming need to take form using whatever material is at hand. They need to manifest through language, through lines and colors, through this and that. But the argument I'm making, I think, at some point in the book is that once you can see the Mona Lisa – Let's say, for example, or once you can read the Moliere, you're seeing something that's there. You're not creating something that isn't actually there. What we've referred to on the show as the imaginal, the the, the world of imagination with a capital I, the archetypal world, let's say, is part of reality. And these works are ways to use the things of this world to point us to that reality. So the person who looks at the Mona Lisa and sees a kind of guardian at the threshold of the realm of the dead is seeing much more than the person who sees the Mona Lisa and just sees like an object. Oh, but let's use use this as a tray or let's use this to screen off the wind in in the window of the flaps of our tent or whatever. Like the content of the work is connecting you to something in reality, which without the aesthetic, without art, we would not be able to share We'd each have an access to it on a private basis through our dreams, through our imaginings. But art is the way in which we transfigure the material world in order to evoke this other world, which would otherwise be just locked inside each of us, that we wouldn't have the language to communicate with one another. Proust says something like, Without art, it would be impossible for two consciousnesses to inhabit the same space. That art is a kind of magical way by which we bring into the world, incarnate in the world, the archetypal realm, which is invisible to us. I mean, that's Paul Klee's definition of art is to render visible that which is invisible, right? So that's a different way of looking at it. I think that there's much more to say about that way of looking at it than the purely historicist thing that basically just reduces the meaning, content, everything about a work of art to the assumptions of a particular cultural moment, which I think is just silly (laughs) because then it's just a silly way of looking at it. Um, Another argument- Which isn't
1: isn't to say that those cultural
0: contexts aren't important. Well, no, they're they're essential because they're the means by which an artwork arises, right? So So you need to-
1: They're part of the machinic assemblage.
0: Right. You need the English language to have Shakespeare it needs to manifest through the material reality. Uh, so you need you need letters to put on the page so that the actors can learn their lines and that the play can survive its performance. Those letters are material objects, they're signifiers that we create. But what comes through that process, that's the real part of the work. The reason we still read Hamlet today is because it's pointing to something that's real. And so by learning English and learning to read Hamlet, you get access to that. You might have access to it in your own language through other works because the archetypes are the archetypes and there's all kinds of ways of engaging with these things. And that's another important point is that every engagement since the archetypal imaginal realm is uh, transcendent, at least transcendent to this world, any encounter with it will be singular it's not like every instance of the dragon in myth and literature is pointing us to the same archetypal dragon. Every new dragon is a completely new thing, just like um, every – every well, you could argue that about everything. Like you could say that every time you make coffee, you're making coffee for the first time in a way, and it's just your own – intellectual reduction of reality that sees every instance of copy making as a reenactment of the same kind of moment it, yeah. everything's always new and i think art is one of the things that point us to that eternal newness of everything uh, mm. which is otherwise difficult to remember right so it's a, it's a reminder of that
1: is another possible way that we could think of your theory of art as an esoteric theory of art. It's actually quite a bit more directly connected to the esoteric tradition. And I'm thinking of the emanationist cosmology, such as we find in Kabla. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was ever on your mind when you made this book. um, So this is just my interpretation I'm pivoting off of what you just said and going with one aspect of what you were just saying. So this idea is occurring to me now as we speak. Tell me what you think of it. Okay. You know, there's like in Kabbalah, there's four worlds and each one is an emanation of the preceding one. So the top one, we might call like the spiritual world, the unmanifest or beyond manifest. Or we might think of that if we are mapping it onto non-Western wisdom traditions, as we might call it the non-dual or emptiness. But in any event, we can think of that as a sphere, a sphera, that emanates into the next world. There's a, another world kind of closer to manifestation that tumbles down out of this beyond manifestation spiritual realm. And we might call that the realm of ideas or the realm of forms, if we're thinking, you know, platonically. Right. And then there's a further realm that Lionel Snell calls the image world, mm. but we might call the astral or the imaginal.
0: Right. Corbin's uh, category of the imaginal
1: is, is kind of useful there, yeah. Right. And you do talk about the imaginal in this book quite a bit. And then finally, we end up at the material world, right? And each of these worlds, the spiritual, the intellectual, the image, or astral, or or let's, let's say the... Imaginal, And then finally, the material, each one is included by and transcended by the preceding one. Right. So the spiritual world includes and transcends the world of forms. The world of forms includes and transcends the world of images. And all of those higher realms include and transcend the material. And so when you're working with a kind of emanationist cosmology as you do in Kabbalah, you are understanding things in this world that we encounter as things at the end of their long journey, as they have been emanated from the source, you know, from Kether all the way down to, to Malkut, right? Everything that manifests down here in the world, Malkut, is an emanation from something higher. Something that you've said before, like for Shakespeare's plays to be written, there has to be the English language. And there also has to be Shakespeare and there has to be the existence of pen and paper and, you know, a thousand and one other. Whatever education Shakespeare received, uh, the fact that
0: he had hands to write with, you know, like all
1: these things have to be in place. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And being as we are down here in the material world, if you are a materialist, Your view of the world is the emanationist view of the world with the top three bits cut off. You only have basically a horizontal cosmos. An emanationist cosmos is vertical. There's always a vertical axis of ascent from the lowest to the highest world. In a materialist world, everything is horizontal, which is, I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing, but then in our conventional materialist or materialist conditioned understandings of art, we're going to remain at the level of all of those things that we just enumerated that have to exist for Shakespeare to write a play. But in your theory of art, you are thinking of the the writing of the play with all of the material things that have to happen in order for that to happen as the end point of something that is emanating from elsewhere. From higher up, from the imaginal, and perhaps ultimately from somewhere even further, the spiritual. Yeah, in the book that I to be rather
0: uh, agnostic or ecumenical about it, I called it radical mystery. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the that would be for me the Ein Sof or the uh, Kether, perhaps like the ultimate. At least that's a nice secular way of framing the idea of the divine for us is to talk about mystery. The mysterious. Even if you are a materialist, then the, the the why of it is astoundingly important to anybody. Right. So yeah, there is always the ultimately correct interpretation of any given work of art is that it is pointing us to radical mystery. I think that all art does that as a matter of course. It's just implicit in the process. The minute you take, uh, I don't want to deviate from what you were trying to get at, though. We maybe want to finish your no no. Your, please again. finish yeah, your so, train of thought. Uh, The very process of art making, it's always a process of framing and selecting, right? Making a work of art. You select a certain set of notes and you select a certain framing, a certain, you know, I'm going to do a sonata and those notes will be in there. Of course, that's not how you actually do it, but that's ultimately what's going on is you're selecting things and putting them in a frame and arranging them and then saying, there you go. And then you walk away from it. The last part of the work, as Da Vinci said, is you abandon it. So you make something like an Inukshuk, right? You you pile a bunch of things together, you do a little make a little arrangement, and then you step away. And then people come to it and you're not there, right? Even if you're performing, even if you're a violinist and you're performing, you're not there. It's not you. You're the performance is, right. is something other than you. So yep. that very process of framing and selecting a certain set of objects, which in the normal mode of consciousness, are reducible to their purposes, their functions in a semiotic system. Once they're framed out of that system, they suddenly become somehow sui generis. They exist on their own, like Van Gogh's sunflowers. You know, it's not they're not just there to cheer up the parlor anymore. They're in a frame on their own and cut off from the causal system which generates them. So it's like if you were to do a portrait of Shakespeare and all of a sudden there's Shakespeare, the guy who has two hands and ink to write with and some vellum or paper to write on and who knows the English language. All that historical stuff is kind of just relativized the minute you frame him in a portrait. Let's say that the portrait of Shakespeare is Falstaff. People have often said or Prospero. Uh, people have said that Prospero is kind of a self-portrait on Shakespeare's part. So all of a sudden, what you're left with, well, if, if Prospero is a portrait of Shakespeare, it's Shakespeare as cut off from the merely material drift of his own constitution as a historical being. He's now exists as a kind of spirit. And as much as I think it's important to know that Shakespeare was a historical person, It's also important to know that in every being, there is a singularity that reaches up across the emanations right up to that initial source, to that fundamental source. And that it's in seeing the singularity in the other, whether the other is William Shakespeare or whether the other is a a stray cat, or a tree. That's what painters do. They see the singularity in material things that by framing them out of the drift, they allow the singularity to come to the fore and therefore remind us that everything reaches up through the emanations to that ultimate source.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It,
0: yeah. It's like at one part, it's a simple way of putting it, you know, comparing, for example, in the book, at one point I compare a botanical diagram of sunflowers to Van Gogh's sunflowers. The difference is that in a scientific diagram, you're taking the object that you want to represent and you're, you're ruling out all the anomalies, everything that makes any particular sunflower unique in order to show us the kind of perfect or standard or, or universal sunflower, which you will never find in the actual world any more than you'll find a perfect circle in the actual world. Van Gogh is going... The opposite route And that's the route of art Is to go deeper and deeper and deeper Into the singularity of these particular sunflowers Such that by the point we arrive At the singularity of these sunflowers We also come to know something Of the form of sunflower itself That it's through the singular That you achieve the form And not through the general Right? Mm, Um, mm, mm. And so, so That's interesting I think an emanationist model is essential to that It's kind of implicit in it so long as we understand that the word emanation, I can't remember what the Greek word is, but it's a very interesting word. It was selected by the Neoplatonists precisely because it's not a causal thing. The emanations don't yeah. happen in time. They're happening all the time. And, and Kether and, uh, and Bina, all the different Sephiroth are here right now. We, there is no material world on its own. It's not like there's the material world, then there's this other world on top and another world on top. It's that once you've been initiated through Kabbalah, have ascended through the various Sephiroth to the top and back, you realize that this world is it. The entirety of the emanation system is present now in each moment. I ended up writing this book at a time in my life when I was very frustrated with my efforts to get films financed, like feature films, I made a few short films. And I was working more in a commercial capacity. I was working with a major uh, multimedia company in Montreal, uh, and they do like really elaborate, immersive environments. and And I ended up getting hired to participate in a project, the whole entertainment component of a gated community that they were going to build in Louisiana. The community never got built because of Katrina. But for months, we were working on this thing. And the idea was that this particular gated community was located on a tract of land that had no real history. It was kind of like just drained bayous, I'm, I'm imagining. And this one area near, uh, I can't remember if it was Baton Rouge or New Orleans, but they wanted... This community to have a sense of belonging and a sense of rootedness and a sense of history. But there was nothing about this particular place that would occasion that. So this company was hired to develop a set of legends and myths and folklore that belonged to that community. And my job was to do the Christmas show. And I worked on that for a while. We made up new characters and we, we, we had like maps of the area. So we'd use these names, name of a road or the name of a, of a bayou or the name of a field. We use that. We create characters out of those so that when people, you know. <laughs> so they, you were retconning the whole town. We were retconning a history of this town. And I, I felt really weird about it. I mean, it was, a, it was a blast. And there's a lot of talent in this particular company. And I was really happy to be working with them. But afterwards, I became very uncomfortable with the idea. And for me, it brought to the fore the extent to which the aesthetic has become central to our world in the wake of Hiroshima, which we've talked about, you know, that that since the Second World War, our world has become hyper-aestheticized. And I think that the way in which the aesthetic is deployed for shaping reality is deeply, deeply problematic today. And I think fundamentally at odds with art as we've been discussing it. And so it's a very personal book. It doesn't make any claims to being exhaustive, but the goal was just to open up a way of thinking about art that I'd always felt. And with my artist friends, it was implicit when we talked about how great this movie was or how wonderful that show at the gallery was. or the, It's kind of the implicit way we have. I, in a way, I mean, the comment I've received the most, I think, was, is people coming to me and saying, you've confirmed my intuitions. You know, I've always felt this, but no one had put words to it. And I thought that that was an important thing to do at this time, because of the extent to which the aesthetic has been deployed for,
1: I think, what are ultimately rather nefarious ends, the spectral society as you call it you know i love that idea of the spectral society it's actually kind of similar to something we've talked about on the show about a certain idea of hell i can't remember which show we were talking about like non places like an airport right or shopping um, mall or shopping mall Right. You know, there's colored surfaces. Everything is sort of colored and vividly formed. Everything is aesthetic in the sense that everything that your senses alight upon has been shaped or sculpted or molded in some manner. But it's shaped and sculpted and molded in such ways to get you to do something. Right. To enlist your action, either to get you to buy something or to orchestrate hatred against some political movement or figure or whatever to arouse aversion or desire. I mean, the thing that you said in that riff about Hades is this sort of realm of distractions of bright lights and right. and you can't see the actual sky. It's just like, that's the point is that it all occludes something that you don't see the light of the sky. You only see the lights of the city, the lights of all of the LED panels, you know, like when you walk through an airport and they've got a million fucking TVs set up and everyone is tuned to cable news.
0: Yeah. I remember when I first read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it was around the same time in Toronto as they kind of redid... Is it called Nathan Phillips Square? Or no, that's the, the...
1: That's the city hall.
0: and Where the Eden Center is there. I can't oh, remember. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Young and, uh, Young and Dundas. Well, it's the Dundas suburb Dundas, Trin- Dundas Square. Dundas yeah, Square. Yeah.
0: So have you seen it recently? It's kind of like this mini Times Square. I remember stepping out from seeing a movie, bathing in the afterglow of this film, and suddenly I walk out and I find myself in this... Overlit, like it's crazy. It's just like all, this all these dance. It's a bardo realm, yeah. And that's, I think, that was when I came up with the idea of spectrality as the aesthetic effect that is constantly being sought out today. Going into a casino, you really, you know, the, the soundscape of a casino. It's like all these little bells and bling 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 bling, bling and like hushed right. voices. There's always a kind of monotone. Um, a tone coming from high up in a, a, a... So I've heard that that's actually designed, this tone is designed to make you feel calm and comfortable. Really? And that they pump oxygen into the <laughs> casino so, so that you feel oxygenated. And you. all these techniques are used in order to create an aesthetic experience that'll
1: make you spend money and lose money. Right. Um, Just like they've done research that if you play music loud in a bar, people will drink faster, which is why there are no tolerable bars. Right. They're because all fucking loud as shit and you can't hear the person you're trying to talk to because they're trying to get you to drink up. They want to make conversation difficult so that you drink more. And so yeah. this is an aesthetic experience, but it's aesthetic in a kind of manipulative way. It's trying to enlist your action on something to get you to drink or right. to get you to feel like gambling or or whatever. Yeah. So that's the world that we live in, a world in which art is enlisted in a kind of constant 3D moving soundscape that we're always on. We're always on stage. And the two modes that this kind of degraded aesthetic experience is conducted in, one is pornography and the other is didacticism yeah or propaganda propaganda yeah so you use those terms right that's the pornography and propaganda
0: yeah something i get from james joyce in a portrait of the artist as a young man joyce joyce's alter ego stephen dedalus in the book develops a kind of theory of art that he shares with his friends. And there's there's a certain note of irony in that, of course, because it's Joyce writing about himself as a young man with these highfalutin ideas, but he stuck to those ideas. And ultimately, I do think that he took these ideas seriously. He draws on Aquinas and basically says that proper art aims at inducing in you a state of what he calls aesthetic arrest. There's a great essay by James Hillman, where he talks about the, the etymology of the word aesthetic. esthus, I think, is the Greek word, which means breath. It's the same source as the word asthma. When you encounter something that short circuits the normal chain of sensory motor reflex that normally governs your movements through the world, we say that it's breathtaking, right? It takes your breath. That's the aesthetic experience. And that's what proper art should do for Joyce. It should stop you in your tracks. It should move you as opposed to making you move. And improper art for Joyce is art that makes you move. It's an aesthetic construct that contains its own interpretation so that it makes you do something very specific. So pornography is art that presents its object as inherently desirable. It causes attraction to the object. It induces this in you. And propaganda is art that induces repulsion in you to the object, to some object. And so those are the two ways in which art fails to achieve its ultimate end and becomes a tool of history, of time, of Caesar, right? In the endless quest for control and conquest and whatever that constitutes the demented parade of history.
1: Hmm. Interesting that Joyce's twofold typology of bad art, pornography, and propaganda, corresponds with two of the three poisonous minds of Buddhism, aversion and craving. Right. You know, like basically suffering, dukkha, wanting things to be other than they are. And what causes dukkha is craving and aversion. And the third of the three poisonous minds is ignorance, which is being enfolded in this veil of Maya or whatever what you want to call it. It might not be illusion, but it's also like your take might be wrong, right? right? But you are enfolded in a world of samsara, of suffering and endless wandering from one pleasure to another, trying to scratch an itch that can never be scratched. Your state of ignorance
0: prevents you from seeing the relativity and contingency of your desires and aversions. You can't right, exactly. see how they're actually just, oh, these aren't me. You're completely identify with your
1: desires and aversions,
0: and therefore you're, you're you're like a puppet to these forces. Right.
1: I once wrote somewhere, capitalism is ego orchestrated on planetary scale. Yeah, I can see that. Because, you know, that classic Buddhist understanding of craving aversion and ignorance, the three poisonous minds, is it's an idea of the individual human psyche, right? Right. That it's the ego, that sort of sense of self. I don't, by the way, believe that it's bad to have an ego. Nevertheless, there's this... Untamed, ignorant ego that is just blundering through life, looking for love in all the wrong places. Like, geez, I'm suffering. Maybe eating this delicious meal or buying this book. I mean, like, that's me all over. Maybe buying this book will somehow fill the empty hole in my soul. (laughs) But uh, what's interesting is that the behavior of human beings orchestrated in consumer capitalism basically is samsara realized on global scale. It's a vast engine or machinic assemblage, if you will, for getting us to dwell 24-7 in craving and aversion and trying hard as possible to deprive us of the means of understanding that that's what it's doing. That's how the ego works in its day-to-day, but that's how capitalism works in controlling all of our egos and fusing them into a kind of a vast egregore.
0: Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. I, I've often thought of that in the Western context, you know, the old, uh, the seven deadly sins. Well, just think of how all of these are not only accepted now as as being just fine, but encouraged at every turn Gluttony, life. gluttony wrath, gluttony, wrath tw- greed twitter twitter is wrath yeah, basically yeah, it's the exactly. engine of wrath yeah, exactly there's a nice um diagram once i saw with like a social media platform for each of the deadly sins like <laughs> facebook was vanity <laughs> yeah, that's right i saw that yeah. too so pride sloth greed wrath gluttony and lust I'm sorry. Look around. I mean, we, our society <laughs> is entirely predicated in a celebration of these things. And, yes. And the thing about the seven deadly sins that makes them so interesting is that they're very close to the Buddhist idea of dukkha, right? Because right. they're not actions. You know, sloth is not an action. Sloth is a state of mind that leads you to do all kinds of different things. They're states of mind pride is not an action. Like, you don't do pride. You do prideful things. You're in a state of mind that is prideful. So uh, properly understanding that might actually allow us to revise some of the kind of knee-jerk reactions that we have to the concept of sin, at least how it's theologically understood in the West, which is much closer to what you'll find in the East, I think. But yeah, I mean, our society is entirely predicated on celebrating these things. Now, of course, you could argue that it was the same in the Roman Empire, right? Right. I mean, the Buddha came around and, and taught his teaching precisely because everybody around him was caught up in yeah, these things. exactly. So it's not like- yeah, cap- So this isn't necessarily yeah, new. Yeah. No, exactly. It's just the way of, of Caesar, as a Christian might say, right? Yeah.
1: But we have to admit that consumer capitalism manages to do it with excellent technical resources. That's the key It does thing. it very efficiently and powerfully.
0: It does it efficiently, powerfully because of the unprecedented advancements- in the area of what Jacques Ellul calls technique, which includes technology, but it's a much broader term. It's an entire ethos predicated on efficiency. And that combined with a total abandonment of the whole emanations-based kind of view of reality that we were talking about before adds up to the society we have
1: now. I mean... um, yep. And the shitty takes on art that people have right now. Right, right. It's just like, why are the academic humanities, like with all exceptions duly noted, there's some wonderful people doing wonderful work in the academic humanities, including some of my own students. So I'm not bagging on everybody here. But- you will find in professionalized art interpretations such as is found in the academy but also in general interest magazines online magazines vox and so on you will find a general climate of opinion about art something that i once saw referred to as takes criticism like a kind of debased art criticism based on like the, on the, the intellectual style of twitter takes which tends to reduce art entirely to the peccadillos of the person who created it. So if we discover that a certain artist is a misogynist or a racist or some variety of bad person, then we are done with that art form. We are uninterested in listening to it or reading it or whatever. And we are incapable, apparently, of imagining that art could ever be anything more than propaganda or pornography. Our hermeneutics of suspicion are such that we go into, and when I say we, I'm, t- I'm speaking collectively of people who engage in this kind of practice in which I try not to, but I'm not going to hold myself aloof from this either. We go into every engagement with a work of art, not open, not in a state of openness to aesthetic experience, openness to the new. Right. That you, I think, quite rightly argue is the central thing of an authentic aesthetic experience, the disclosing of the new. Astonishment, right. Yeah, astonishment. To experience that, you need to lay yourself open. Just, you know. You need to fall on your knees a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, it's almost the same attitude that you have in prayer, like to quiet your own yapping, egoic discursive mind to allow another subtler influence to take over. And what we do instead of having that attitude of openness is to approach these engagements with suspiciousness so that that doing something to us or with us, you know, that machinic assemblage of artwork plus me plus the time and space in which it's all happening, like we're going to go into that situation being like, what are you trying to sell me? What are you trying to get me to do? Who are you trying to get me to hate? And so like if we find out that, for example, Wagner is a vicious anti-Semite, which he was, then we will approach every one of his compositions as if it's a piece of propaganda just waiting somehow to plant a seed of anti-Semitism in our soul. And this kind of takes criticism is the kind of criticism that could only exist in this kind of spectral society where art is routinely debased reduced to the level of either propaganda or pornography, either aversion or craving. Yeah. And ignorance, as we said before, is the inability to imagine an alternative to that. What we are dealing with is ignorance orchestrated by this spectral society.
0: Right, right. There's another side that I've been much more exposed to as an artist working in, in the industry. And it's the more uh, pornographic attitude that people have, which is predicated on not on, on uh, moral purity, which is the what you're pointing to. Like the, that type of takes criticism is always looking for moral impurities in works of art. In allowing us to condemn the author of the work, we can then dismiss the work and everything it has to say. On the other hand, you have a kind of pornographic attitude, which is to look at art as purely as a form of entertainment, as a form of diversion or amusement. And you'll see this type of criticism all the time outside of academia. A film might have a scene where the camera lingers a little too long on a person eating a bowl of soup. It's something I heard somebody complaining about recently the camera is really lingering on this person eating a bowl of soup for like a solid minute. And of course, then it's like, what the hell? So self-indulgent. What is the direct? Move on to the next thing. Uh, you know, that kind of attitude or um, yeah. the, the kind of parasocial obsession that some people fall into when it comes to what happens to their favorite characters on TV shows, as though the makers of this work have some kind of moral duty to entertain them. Like entertainment is really low on the list of factors that matter when it comes to experiencing a work of art. Uh, you might watch a film that you're dis- you 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 bored out of your skull and you hate, but it might haunt you for years. That's happened to me. To reduce art to that type of thing, that's the entire industry is built on that base, right? The base that we are first and foremost entertainers. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that it's not the priority when it comes to creating a work of art. It can't be. I, I get into this in the rifts chapter in the book where I talk about rifts and the importance of little acausal weirdnesses in any work of art in order for the new to come through. At one point in the book, I quote John Berger's interpretation of a portrait by Rubens of Rubens's wife. The portrait is strange because the, the top and lower half of the figure don't quite match up. And uh, the woman is wearing a kind of like a cloth around her waist. But Berger comes up with this amazing interpretation that would be impossible if the figure had been anatomically correct. It needed this little mistake to become what it is. The painting needed that. However, if you go out and work in Hollywood, you make a movie, well, they're going to put your film in front of a focus group and any sense of that sort of thing going on, any sense of a little errors, little lacunae, little hiccups or continuity problems, all those things will have to be ironed out in order for the film to become a smooth, entertaining experience. And what you lose when you do that isn't just the idiosyncrasies of this particular film, you lose the artistry of the film itself, because the argument here is that those rifts are often the most important part of a work of art. Those are the little gaps that open the work onto the imaginal, that open up a space for you to to engage, to to become, to, to consummate that machinic assemblage with it, because those things don't quite make sense, and therefore those rifts are pulling you into the work. They're challenging you to really kind of just submit yourself to what this work has to say because it's not perfectly reflecting an idea of reality, which in any case doesn't even hold true. You know, life is not just a set of perfect continuities. Life is filled with strange synchronicities, weird dreams, things that come out of nowhere, bizarre coincidences. It's so funny how we don't allow artists... To include things that are part and parcel of life in this world, for example, coincidence. Like some, a lot of people have criticized Arthur Machen because there's too much coincidence in his work. But come on, like coincidence happens <laughs> all the time in the world. Why can't he use it? Anyways, I'm going on and on just to talk about this other way in which we fail art, which is to expect it to give us what we already know. Right. To constantly give us what we already know. To give us what Plato called doxa, opinion, consensus the things that everybody knows.
1: It's funny. I've always thought that there is a remarkable symmetry between you and me, JF, that you wrote this book and developed your aesthetic theory out of a dissatisfaction from working in a film industry that systematically works to prevent rifts and individuality and, you know, all these things that we were just talking about. And I (laughs) encountered you at the moment that I was... Entertaining the same flight, the same aversion from my own industry, from the world of the academic humanities, for very similar reasons. Because in my world, our way of talking about art likewise refuses to engage with all those impractical extras, all those things that tend to get left out. Yeah. I mean, I love the example that you gave of um, it's just a camera holding a shot too long. You know, David Lynch. Does that all the time, of course, that's part of the Lynch style, is is holding the camera for a long time on something, whether it's a an object or a human face. And when he does it on a human face, it's inevitably it gives us those moments of strangeness where you have like a facial expression. It's like held way too long and it's it's weird. And in Twin Peaks the Return, he really pushes it. He's probably sat through a lot of meetings where people try to give him notes to tell him to tighten up his shots. And so he's like giving them a big fuck you by having one scene that's just a guy sweeping up peanut shells for like two or three minutes. Doesn't sound like much, but it feels like a miniature eternity in film time. Although in that case, you know, Lynch has developed a career basically in order to allow himself to continue to have those moments. Right. You know, his, the famous deal he struck with Dino De Laurentis where he had would have 100% artistic control over Blue Velvet. This is coming off of the debacle of Dune. But that he would be given a minuscule budget and he has consistently made decisions like that in his life that have allowed him to continue doing that. And I get the feeling that our whole shared project, yours and mine, has been us trying to create career circumstances where we can – do our equivalent of filming a guy sweeping up peanut shells for two and a half minutes.
0: Exactly. No, I think you're right. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, it doesn't have much of a ring to it. But we could have called it Rift Studies because the weird, I mean, ultimately for me, the weird is just the rift in everything. And if right. you draw exactly. your attention to the rift in everything, then all of these kind of pat, doxic as opposed to toxic interpretations of reality, all of these easy, ideologically contrived pictures of what life is about, well, if you just point to the rift and things, then those things kind of fall away. They become interesting in a different way. They become interesting the way your desires and aversions become interesting once you know that they're contingent and Yes, you know, then you can play with them. Your ego is fine if you know it's an ego,
1: you know? Exactly. It's just like one thing
0: among many. And I think art is great because it's constantly confronting us with an other that we are then challenged to allow to exist in our space, to share a space with us. And it's too easy, I think, in life, even in everyday life, and family life, work life, to constantly only see the labels we project on the people and things around us. Whereas art is asking us to look at something for the first time, each time. And then my hope was that maybe art can give us a way back to modes that are now almost obsolete, almost lost to us, modes of magical modes of experiencing reality there is a kind of like religiosity of art going on in this book but it's different from the Alain de Botton way of doing it like art as a celebration of virtue or something That's not like that it's more like Art as a celebration of your absolute relativity in this bizarro universe, you know, of how spiritual growth involves, first and foremost, accepting that you are just one thing among many, as Paul Klee said, that man is a creature on a star among stars. But then again, on a deeper level, to see how it's only by coming to understand that, that you are then propelled through the emanational planes back to this source, this radical mystery, which makes you anything but relative, anything but irrelevant, because this little parcel, this little mite that you are in some completely unimportant corner of a completely unimportant galaxy is seeing somehow the source of it all. And that's something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's something. (laughs) It's something. Yeah, Yeah, it's everything. (laughs) It's everything. Yeah. And this is what's missing when, I mean, you mentioned Alain de Baton and I don't hate the dude. He just seems smart enough. And at one point I cared enough to take his book down off the shelf. I forget what it's called. What is that book called? Religion for Atheists. That's the book that I read. When he was talking about that book, he published it around 2012, I think. He made public appearances, and I remember hearing one of them. I think it was a podcast or maybe a recording of – I think it was a recording of a public talk, maybe something he did at like the Los Angeles Public Library or New York Public Library. But basically what the book is about and what he was talking about in this, in this talk is how we moderns have grown – up and no longer need the false consolations of religion but we still need what religion gives a human life you know the the sense of for example the meaningful passage of time something that max weber among others pointed out is how much capitalist modernity is that that the shape of it is given by the clock face the segmenting of time into discrete quanta and the ability to plan our lives according to this latticework of measured quantified time, that that's like kind of the architecture of the modern right there. You know, he's like, well, religious people have figured out ways that they can experience special times, high time. I mean, you know what Charles Taylor calls the higher times. But what he comes up with is stuff that's sort of like the way in the French Revolution, they renamed all the months and the days of the week and stuff. I forget what names they gave them. Thermidor was one. I remember that. Thermidor was one. Yes. I always liked the sound of that one. So he's trying to think of like secular humanist analogs for things you can get from religion. And one of the things that you can get from religion is a sense of passion and a sense of devotion and being inspired, being infused with a kind of enthusiasm for something more than just the dull routine of getting and spending. And he's like, you know, you go to like a charismatic church. He's talking about charismatic churches where people are like, you know, praise Jesus or like, yes, Lord, With the preacher is giving a sermon and people are like feeling the spirit and saying right. stuff back. And he's like, we need something like that. But instead of yes, Jesus and praise God, how about... Yes, Jane Austen, and praise <laughs> Darwin. And I just about curled up in a ball of embarrassment and shame hearing yeah. this. It was so one of the cringiest things I've ever heard. Uh, and why is that so cheesy and insufficient?
0: I think it's because it's saying yes to the historically contingent person who was Jane Austen, as opposed to yes to what in Jane Austen might point us back to religion. It's like, it's like, if you do that.
1: (laughs) Point us back up that emanation. Exactly.
0: It's, it's trying to get away with, it's like, yes, Jane Austen. What, what is it? Her opinion about this or that? Like, what is it that we're saying yes to? What makes Jane Austen so different?
1: Yes. And what makes her works
0: special? Certainly it's something like undeniably the religious depth of her writing. On some level. And I'm using the word religious in a non-denominational way. Right. uh, But I'm talking about how her writing brings us back to what Paul Tillich called ultimate concern. And ultimate concern being a kind of way of framing this thing that in the book I'm calling radical mystery. And then radical mystery occasioning almost automatically, machinically, some conception of the divine. What, no matter what you want to call it, you call it the Tao, you can call it God, some kind of ultimate source of meaning, if not some ultimate meaning, some kind of inherent font of meaningfulness that makes the world religious again, if you see it, you know? So it's like you can't get your cake and eat it too. You can't, you can't say yes, Jane Austen, really, without becoming religious again. You're not going to be atheist in that way. There are forms of atheism that are profoundly spiritual. But the point is that what he's saying, he's saying we need to replace religion with religion, is ultimately his argument, I think. Because the only context in which I would say, yes, Jane Austen, is if Jane Austen, through her work, had been somehow transfigured into something that is not just, you know, Jane Austen, but something much more fundamental, something of much more fundamental force, which is impossible to distinguish from a religious force. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we're fundamentally
1: religious in that sense. I think we've arrived at an important place, feels like a good place, feels like a new place, which is coming up with not a bad shorthand definition of religion or what is religious in a religious work of art. It's not whether it participates in some doctrine of religion or some religious tradition or some rite but whether it's doing that thing of moving up the chain of emanation.
0: Right. Back to the source.
1: Back to the source.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favourite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.